0: And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know, They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress in nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming in the, on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near so also when you see these things taking place you know that the kingdom of god is near truly i say to you this generation will not pass away until all has taken place heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly Came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be
1: to God. Well, we have a, a lengthy text in front of us tonight, uh, and uh, as in times past, I'll mention to you um, one of the one of the needs of interpreting difficult portions of Scripture is reading them in the context in which they are given to us, and we are greatly aided by lengthy readings of the text to see all of the individual parts and phrases and words in the thrust of how they're presented to us as readers. Uh, The interpretation of these verses, uh, Luke 21, 5 through 38, is already difficult. It's already a hard thing to do. And we make it more difficult when we read uh, simply, let's say, verse 29 through verse 33 in isolation of the rest of the the discourse, the rest of what's going on. And so uh, it will be my, uh, I'll make my best effort tonight to, to try to make this passage as clear as possible to you, uh, but I am gonna confess there's probably still gonna be questions that you might have at the end of our time together, and that's okay. That's part of the beauty of studying scripture and uh, saturating yourself in it. Uh, so the, the one main thing though that we need to put uh, before us is the main idea that Jesus has been establishing in the last couple of chapters, really the last couple of days of his earthly ministry, uh, On Sunday of this week, he has come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, making his triumphal entry. He was received by the people with worship. And one of the first things he does when he has entered into the city of Jerusalem is he clears the temple. And what he says at that time is that my house will not be uh, a house of false worship, a house of this uh, worship that has been commodified and and the sacrifices being sold uh, for profit. This is not what worship in the temple is going to be like. So he purifies it. He purges the temple. And after having received worship on his entrance into Jerusalem and having purged the temple, he has put a target on his back that has been there since the beginning of Luke's gospel, but now he's magnifying it to the point where the the religious authorities and leaders want to put him to death. In fact, they're seeking an opportunity now to kill him. And so Jesus has come into the, the city as their redemptive king. He's been received as the redemptive king by the people, rejected by the religious leaders and the scribes as that king. And then they go against him and oppose him by giving him a couple of tests, which uh, you can read about in chapter 20. And he answers each of those tests in turn and then responds to them by asking a question of his own, where he puts to them a difficult passage to interpret and asks them, who is this messianic figure that David here refers to? And then in in his final move against the the Pharisees, right before these verses take place, he, he tells his disciples, beware of the Pharisees and the scribes and their teachings. And then he says, and look here at this widow who is now financially destitute as a result of the religious oppression of the Jewish system in this day. The Jewish people who are uh, supposed to be the, the, the fingerprint of God on the earth, who are supposed to be the ones who care for the widows and orphans, have turned their religious system into one which exploits the widows and builds its financial strength off of the, the generosity and poverty of Of widows and so it's with all that in the background that jesus then turns and looks at jerusalem and looks at the temple and says all of these things will be laid to waste and that's because this temple this temple that he's looking at is still standing it's still physically there but it is no longer the place of vitality in israel because in jesus's incarnation he is the true temple He is the one who's coming to replace the old temple system, which is there. And he's the one who will stand as the true temple in its place. So here you have Jesus standing against the temple of his day, the glorious temple, which his disciples and everyone admires. And he says, this temple is no longer the place where we will worship God. Rather, as we will come to find out in later parts of the New Testament, uh, Jesus, his body, his church is where we will meet to fellowship and worship God. And so what Jesus is doing here in these verses is he's declaring the destruction of the Jewish temple, which will take place uh, but in 40 years from this point. And he's showing and and he's doing that out of necessity because the real temple, the true temple, the culmination of which all the old signs and sacrifices and types have pointed to is now here in Jerusalem. So I will try to make that clear as we go through these verses. uh, But in order to do that, we need to actually get into the text itself. So look with me at verse 5 for the context of this passage. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things, see the days will come when there will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You can imagine how striking that is. Jesus is looking out over this beautiful temple compound. Now, it's hard for me to re- picture for you how glorious that temple was, but this is one of the wonders of the world. This is uh, a building beyond buildings, a beautiful site beyond sites. Herod, the one who uh, was uh, the Herod before the Herod who's currently reigning in the days of Jesus, uh, had made it his whole mission, his whole effort to summon all his financial uh, work and all the labors that he could muster to rebuild the temple back into its former glory. He's adorned it with gold, with precious jewels, with the finest building materials and the finest craftsmanship that he could get his hands on. And the result is the temple is a place where people go and they look at the beauty of the craftsmanship in which it was built. And so the disciples, having now visited Jerusalem with Jesus, are seeing this temple and admiring it. And Jesus says to them, you see all of this beautiful work, all of this craftsmanship, it will be gone. Not one stone will be left upon another. And that begs the question from the disciples, which, which is the one that immediately follows, when will these things be? And what will be the signs when these things are about to take place? The temple is gonna be destroyed. The disciples wanna know when that's gonna happen because the temple being destroyed will be one of the most significant things that happens in the lifetime of the Jews in the first century. And that's because the background of the temple's re- rebuilding is one of prophetic importance. In the Old Testament, right before the Jews are exiled from the land, the very last thing that happens is they have a bunch of prophets who come to them and say, you need to repent and turn from your wickedness, turn from your idolatry. And if you don't, the Babylonians will come, the Assyrians will come, and they will destroy you, they will destroy your cities, they will lay it all to waste. And the last thing that happens with the Babylonians is they destroy the temple. And they carry all the temple goods and and trophies and exiles out into the land of Babylon into captivity. And so one of the big significant things that happens in the restoration of the Jewish people is the restoration of the people back to the land and ultimately the rebuilding of the temple. Not to its former glory, it never reaches its first glory in the days of Solomon, but it was a significant moment for the Jewish people to see God restoring them back into the land in the rebuilding of the temple. And so here Jesus comes and he says, this temple, the one that is the rebuilt temple will also be destroyed For the apostasy of the people and so the disciples of course are curious about when these things will happen and when they are going to take place and then jesus goes on uh, a series of directives and instructions about what things will be like leading up to this destruction and there's a lot of things that he predicts that are we might say signs of the end times perhaps when you read these verses you think about the future coming judgment against all of the world and hear these verses, uh, this is starting in verse 8. Uh, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying that I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. When we, th- we read those verses, you typically think of the end as the end of all things, the end of human history, the end of the judgment against all the world, which is going to come as a result of God's wrath pent up against humanity. But Jesus, remember, is answering a specific question which was asked to him. When will the temple be destroyed? So he tells them, here you'll see wars and rumors of wars. Uh, you'll see that the time is at hand. Uh, you'll see false Christs coming, false, false teachers who come and say, look, I am he. Don't go after them. So he, he tells about this apostasy, this deception. And then he goes and he, he elevates it even further. What will happen prior to the destruction? Verse 10, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs in the heavens. And before all of this, they will lay their hands upon you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for nine names sake. Now, here's the question we have to ask ourselves as we're reading these verses. Who is the you who Jesus is speaking to? The audience in all of these discourses from chapter 19 through now till chapter 21 is very important. And previously, he's been speaking to his disciples. And remember, when he's answering the question, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples, right? They are the ones who ask him the question about when the temple will be destroyed. And so when he speaks to them, notice what he says in verse 12. Before all of this, they will lay their hands upon you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So he's, he's speaking about something that's going to happen in the lifetime of the disciples, the people to whom he is speaking. And actually, one of the things that we have access to is we don't just have the Gospel of Luke in our Bibles. But many of you also have the uh, Book of Acts, which is Luke's second volume, his second edition to establish the history of Christendom. And in his second volume, what he does is he shows us As readers how all of these things are fulfilled in the life of the early church Uh, the disciples are in fact thrown in prison brought before kings persecuted for the sake of christ paul in fact does a number of these things on his own in the book of acts just by his own ministry and witness and then he says in verse 13 jesus is again uh, telling about the future this will be your opportunity to bear witness settle it therefore in your minds Do not meditate beforehand how you are to answer for i will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or to contradict you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends and some of you they will put to death so you will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair on your head will perish and by your endurance you will gain your life you'll notice all over that section The use of the you and your and this will happen to you and you will be delivered and it is by your endurance that you will be uh, saved. So here we have Jesus speaking to his disciples, telling his disciples what they will face in their future and how their evangelistic ministry will fulfill something which must take place prior to the destruction of the temple prior to the temple coming to its destruction. Because remember, he says, before all of those signs take place, these things must take place. You must be persecuted and uh, go before kings and all the rest, but you must endure. And then he says something striking, and this gets to answer the question a little bit more narrowly, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So he's answering the question, right, what, what, what will these, when will these things be and what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? He tells them the sign these things are going to take place. There will be all of this uh, chaos, all of this wars and rumors of wars, all of the kingdoms in turmoil. You will be persecuted. You will be thrown in prison. You might even be put to death. And then you will see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So when will the temple be destroyed? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, that's when you know that the temple is about to be destroyed. And what do you do at that time? In verse 21, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And in fact, he's going to go on to say, basically, if, if, you are, if you are nursing an infant, a child, you better hope that that doesn't happen in this time because if you're nursing a, a young child, it's hard to flee. If, if a destruction is coming on a city, it's better for you not to be nursing or pregnant in those days because you are mobily bound by that child. You won't be able to flee as quickly as you need to. So he's not talking about some cosmic, at this point, end of the world destruction which is going to take place. He's talking about a destruction which is going to take place in Jerusalem in the first century, right? Jerusalem being surrounded by armies. uh, When you see it, you can actually escape the city. If you flee the city, you'll actually escape this destruction. And alas for the women, this is verse 23, for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. What Jesus is doing here in all of this uh, language in the first several verses we've just looked at is he's doing something that echoes uh, what, what has been true of all of the prophets of old, who Jesus really is the final prophet to come to Israel. All of the prophets do some kind of formula like this, where they go to the kings or to the wicked city or to the wicked people and they say, you must repent of your current ways. And if you don't, if you don't repent, judgment and destruction is coming against you. Judgment and destruction is, is the outflowing of sin, which God is holding back and, uh, and holding up against. And in this case, he's, he's held back his judgment, which is to be poured out on the Jewish people for their apostasy. He's been holding that back. And here Jesus comes to Jerusalem, to the temple, and says, but the judgment is coming. The, the time is at hand. It is, it is shortly to take place. As John the Baptist says in uh, Luke chapter 3, the axe has already been laid at the root of the tree. This judgment is surely coming upon you soon. And what will be the result of this? Jerusalem will be ransacked and destroyed by the Gentiles, and this will take place until the time of the Gentiles is complete, or until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And you might be thinking, what on earth does this have to do with me, 2,000 years removed from the destruction of the temple? What Jesus is doing here is he's, he's being a prophet, a true prophet, predicting the future, which is yet 40 years removed from him, but he's doing so in a way that tells you interpretively why we are to understand these things happening as they are. It's not just that uh, the Jews rebel in 66 AD against the Romans, they lose that rebellion, and then the Romans destroy Jerusalem. That that would be how uh, maybe a secular historian would tell those events. But what Jesus is saying is when you see the Jewish people rebel against Rome and Rome quash that Jewish rebellion spanning from 66 to 70 AD, uh, you can interpret that not in some Uh, power struggle, national level kind of thing, you can say this is God's judgment on the Jewish people being meted out. God using Rome, in this case, the Gentile nations, to come against his people, his city, and their temple to enact judgment upon it. It's a striking pronouncement from Jesus, who is the, uh, the, the one who's coming to save his people, right? This is the anticipation of what he's to do. He's to save the Jewish people. And here he is prophesying the destruction of their temple their whole religious system is built upon the temple sacrifices and part of what he's doing is saying this is necessary for the temple to be destroyed not only is the temple corrupt as we've seen in the last couple of weeks but also the temple is fading away this is something that the author of hebrews makes clear in his entire uh writing he says the the temple and the sacrificial system are merely dim shadows and echoes of what takes place with Christ, what he accomplishes in his body. He is the true temple. And so because there's only one temple and here stands Jesus, the true temple, as opposed to the Jewish religious false temple, he's saying this one, the false temple, will be destroyed because the true temple is now standing. In John's gospel, by the way, something similar happens. Uh, Jesus says, you destroy this temple and in three days I will build it back up. And what does John comment? But he's speaking of the temple of his body. He is the one true temple. So what does it have to do with you? If you're a Christian, uh, you take this almost for granted, that Jesus is the true temple, that we don't need a temple to go worship at. It's a little bit like uh, how, how familiarity can make us used to things, right? If you uh, lived through that, uh, that very hot week that happened two or two, one or two weeks ago, um, you almost don't feel it sometimes, depending on how, uh, how much access to air conditioning you have inside, because of the modern conveniences that we have access to. Right? If, if, if you were like me, uh, during the middle of that week, I think it was Wednesday, I was sitting inside on the, on the ground level of my house with a blanket around my legs working on my computer because the air conditioning was on and it was cold inside the house. And if I open the door, though, you can feel the sweltering of the heat coming into the house. But I don't even think about what the weather's going to be like when I wake up in the morning because I have access to a climate-controlled living environment, right? Because I'm so used to that as a comfort, I almost don't have to think about what the weather is going to be like when I wake up in the morning, unless I'm going to do something significant outside. That's a little bit like how we treat the destruction of the temple and Jesus being the true temple as Christians. We have 2,000 years of familiarity with that idea, such that we almost don't even think about it. We almost don't appreciate the fact that what Jesus did was a radical shift in worship. No longer do you need to trek to Jerusalem, to the holy city, and to bring sacrifices in in order to rightly worship God. But you can actually worship God anywhere where Christians are gathered. You can worship him on the Lord's day, all parts of the world, all parts of the globe. There's no one temple for the people of God. The church is the temple of the one true God. Something that our uh, text for our call to worship makes clear. Uh, Who is the temple in the new Jerusalem? Who is the temple in the new heavens and new earth? It's Jesus, he is the temple. He is the one who makes it possible for God and man to to dwell together. And that's something that is radical that Jesus is setting up here. He's saying this temple, which separates God from humanity by by right means, because God is holy and people are not, that will be done away with. And actually there's a new system coming, a new temple coming, which actually will be better than the old one, a fulfillment and and a complete replacement of the old system. So Jesus is doing something radical here uh, in these verses, something that I think we often don't appreciate being so far removed from these happenings. But then uh, the interpretation of these verses gets even a little bit more difficult because Jesus now begins to speak about things in what we would call cosmic destruction language. Now, that's a very fancy way of saying he's going to use figures of speech and images, pictures, drawn from Old Testament prophecy, to re-explain what he just told them was going to happen. So he just said, Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies. It's going to be ransacked and destroyed by the Gentiles. And now in verse 25, he says, he says it this way. He says, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth. There will be distresses of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and because of the waves. People will be fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now who's the you that he's talking to? Still the same you that he's been talking to the whole time. So when he says to, uh, in verse 28, when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near, he's speaking to them in relation to what he said in verse 18 and verse 19 of the chapter they were going to face persecution and suffering and he says and and when you see all of these things taking place and the sign of the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven uh, you're about to be delivered from that persecution which you were facing Uh, basically he's saying there will be an end to the suffering which you will face in the persecution and you'll notice that that's coming when you see the son of man coming on clouds with great power and glory And then the question is, well, what is he talking about when he says, you will see the Son of Man coming in great power and glory? Now, this is uh, imagery drawn from the Old Testament. Some of you might be familiar with the section in Daniel chapter 7, where we meet one who is like the Son of Man, who comes to the Ancient of Days to receive a throne. In fact, uh, it's significant enough where I want you to turn there with me to Daniel chapter 7, your Old Testament, to see these things. And one thing that's interesting about this Son of Man designation, while Jesus is referred to in many different ways in the Gospels, and he's spoken of in many different ways by the writers of the New Testament, he calls himself almost exclusively the Son of Man. Almost no one else refers to him as the Son of Man except himself. So he's calling himself the Son of Man. And here he says, uh, you will see the Son of Man. They will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And so we might say, why is he so specific about that language of the Son of Man? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, you have uh, first and foremost uh, this figure known as the Ancient of Days. Now, this is uh, uh, a vision that Daniel sees, and you'll see it in verse 9 of Daniel chapter 7. And as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And his clothing was white as snow, and his hair on his head was like pure wool. And his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out before him and a thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The Ancient of Days, by the way, is Yahweh, the the God of the Israelites. He is the Ancient of Days. And that's not the weird part about Daniel's vision. The weird part comes in verse 13, when he sees another vision. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that one like the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. And this dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. So here we have Jesus saying in Luke 21, they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. You might say, well, why is he using the language like that coming in a cloud? Well, Daniel says you will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud to the Ancient of Days to receive a kingdom. So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is not some final eschatological end times coming where all of the world will be judged cosmically. Certainly the New Testament teaches that. But what Jesus is speaking of in these verses is him receiving his throne, him receiving his kingdom from the Ancient of Days. This would actually probably be more closely connected to the Ascension. So Jesus is crucified, he dies, he resurrects on the third day, teaches for 40 days on the earth, and then he ascends to heaven. And when he ascends to heaven, that is him going from earth to heaven as one like the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. That is Jesus speaking of his ascension. And so here you have Jesus saying, when you will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory, he's speaking of him as the throne leader in heaven, as the one who holds the power in heaven, He is the one, that will be one of the signs that these things are surely to take place, shortly to come to pass. And if you need any more uh, evidence of that, in uh, the crucifixion account uh, in Luke 23, when Jesus is on trial and and before uh, the high priest, he says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus says this of himself, not just to his disciples, but also to the Jewish high priest. And everyone knows what he's talking about. He's talking about him ascending to the power of God's throne. Now, one of the things that is being established also in these verses, particularly uh, verse 25 and 26, I mentioned that's all the really difficult cosmological language. Uh, We won't have time to turn there, but you can cross-reference this to Isaiah 19 and to Isaiah 13, where these same images and pictures are used... Of God coming in judgment against nations in Isaiah's day so for example in Isaiah 19 God is said to come against Egypt as one riding on a cloud and what happens in Isaiah's day is Egypt is destroyed in a battle in a, in a military conflict that it fights on its own terms and Isaiah says that was God coming in a cloud of judgment against Egypt similarly in Isaiah 13 God speaks of his judgment again, and he says that he will darken the sun and the, the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. And what he's speaking of is a, a judgment which happens to a, an actual nation in the time of Isaiah's day. So as, as difficult as this language is to get our heads around because of how foreign it is to us, he, what Jesus is saying here is no different than what he said in verse 20. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, it will be destroyed by the Gentiles. Then he says it again in a judgment kind of way, using language from the Old Testament. And the point is is still the same, that Jerusalem is the place where the people, the rebellious people of God live, and it's where the false temple exists. And so it will be destroyed. And we shouldn't interpret that as simply the Jews losing against the Romans. We should say this is God working out his purposes in history, to have the one true temple stand unrivaled, to have his son vindicated unrivaled as the true place in which God and man dwell together. There are no rival temples. That's what's going on. And he goes even further. Jesus does. And he says, uh, basically, consider a fig tree when it puts forth its leaves. You know the fruit's ripe. So you know when you see these things take place that all these things are surely to happen. And he says, verse 32, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then again, he's been speaking to that first century people. He says, you and you should pay attention. And now he says something even more difficult, which many commentators have wrestled with. He says of these things, this generation will not pass away. So he's speaking to his disciples, speaking to them in the first century world, speaking to them and saying, these things, you want to know that I'm a true prophet. Here's, here's how you can take this to the bank. This generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. I think we should take those words very seriously because what Jesus is saying is, as the Son of God, as a prophet to the people, he's, he's prophesying the destruction of the temple and saying, it's going to happen within this generation, which, by the way, it does. Within 40 years, the temple is, in fact, destroyed. By Nero's persecution, by the Jewish rebellion, by Vespasian, and then ultimately by Titus, they work in tandem to put the Jewish temple to destruction. So Jesus is vindicated as a true prophet. And we, we might ask the question, why include this in a gospel account written to Gentiles? Uh, we've, we've mentioned several times, Luke's gospel is written not primarily to Jewish people, but primarily to a man named Theophilus, to a, to a Gentile audience, people who aren't familiar with Jewish images and customs, why does Theophilus care if the temple is going to be destroyed? Sinclair Ferguson comments on this exact point and says, imagine Luke writing his gospel probably somewhere around mid-60s AD, 60, 61, 62, 63, somewhere in there. Luke's writing. He's writing to Theophilus this persuasive account saying that Jesus is the true God. He is the one to believe in. Here's all my eyewitnesses, all my evidence. And then what Luke does is he includes this prophecy of Jesus of the destruction of the temple, which Sinclair Ferguson says will act like a time bomb for Theophilus, such that when Theophilus will read these words, maybe he'll put it away for some time and not think much about these words and this prophet who was ultimately put to death and destroyed. And then something happens. Theophilus, a a Gentile of high standing, as many scholars would speculate, will likely be intimately familiar with the details of the political moves in Jerusalem and Judea and ultimately its destruction. And maybe, just maybe, that time bomb will click in his mind where he'll remember the words that Luke penned about this prophet who said, these things would take place. And it acts as a a persuasive ordeal. So even though Theophilus is uh, is not a Jew, he can benefit from the prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction just as the Jews would have because the Jews would have understood in a more covenantal relationship how these things work out. But Theophilus could understand it merely as a prediction of Jesus saying, I can tell the future. And here is what the future looks like. And so what is the application to his disciples? Well, Jesus gives it to us. Verse 34, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So what's the application? He's he's saying to them, you're going to face persecution and trial and all these things. What does he say? He says, endure faithfully, watch carefully, don't fall into drunkenness or into any uh, any kind of backsliding. Stay awake at all times, praying that you would have strength to escape and to stand before the Son of Man. Well, that application carries into all generations of Christians, does it not? These things might have to do with 70 AD, but these words that Jesus says to to his disciples are, are words that are echoed in all of the letters of the churches. When Paul writes to a specific issue in the church in Corinth to deal with sexual immorality in their body, what does he say? He says, deal with that sexual immorality. And by the way, and then theological teaching, 1 Corinthians verse chapter 7, don't you know that you are all part of God's body? You are the temple in which the Holy Spirit of God dwells. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Don't join it to a prostitute. So he goes from specific problem to timeless teaching for Christians about how we ought to live in light of this truth. Here, Jesus does something similar. He he tells the disciples about a specific problem they're going to face, and how do they deal with that persecution, that distress that they will endure through prayer through careful watching over themselves and through vigilance hearing jesus's words carefully well that applies to us today even though these prophecies aren't aren't something we're expecting to be fulfilled in our near future right we're not the you in these verses but these words echo of us we ought to also persevere and to endure as christians as those who hold on to see him again in his bodily appearing to us these are these are words my point is that we can apply as well even though they're not written directly to deal with the problem we're facing. But there's something more in these verses that I kind of uh, said in the beginning. Jesus is is doing this because he is the one true temple. There's no rival temples that should be uh, standing in his way. And I think this is a significant point for Christians to understand, because when we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is the temple, that he is the place where God and man dwell together, we lose a great deal of the richness of the relationship with which we understand him and his work towards us. We think about God very casually, that God can overlook our imperfections and deal with us and and love us anyway. And uh, he he doesn't really care too much about sin. He's not offended by that kind of stuff. But we, we can think all of those things because of the fact that we stand downstream of Jesus having perfected and once and for all delivered a perfect sacrifice it allows us to get away with I think sometimes sloppy thinking about how God relates to people. But God demands perfection in order to live with humanity. That's the striking part about Revelation's image about the new heavens and new earth where God dwells with man, is that that shouldn't happen. That's the problem in the Garden of Eden is that man has severed his relationship with God because of his sinning, because of his rebellion. And so the whole biblical narrative seeks to put that to right. And Jesus comes and he says, I will put it to right by my own power and work. I will come to mankind because mankind can't come to me. I will atone for their sins because they can't atone for their own sins. And then I will, I will give them my spirit. I will pour it out upon them so that they can actually begin to walk in some manner of righteousness. But ultimately, I will purify them perfectly, wash them perfectly clean, and they will be my people and I will be their God, such that God can now dwell with man. Now, in that whole process our action and activity in that is almost negligible. God is doing the bulk of the moving, the bulk of the work, all of the initiation. He's doing all of it and assuring all of it and accomplishing all of it. And as Christians, we just need to rest in the fact that God is the one true temple who puts the the divide between God and man right. Because, as I often comment, we as believers are so quickly tempted to begin to merit favor before God. Begin to think about ourselves in a meritorious relationship where if we Bible study more or pray more or live more holy lives or treat people better, that God dwells more with us then than he does in other times. But if Jesus is the true temple, which I think this passage is establishing, we don't have a system where we bring sacrifices before God and then atone for our own sins. Christ has brought the sacrifice. He has dealt with the payment for sin. And as the result, uh, we simply rest in his work. There's not much for us to do in light of that. We receive it, we acknowledge it, and we rest in it. It's the point of the author of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 4, he says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, so we rest from our work. We rest from our earning and our meritorious efforts. That's at least one point of application. And for those of us who aren't Christians that application actually stands more powerfully because if you're not a Christian, you've never ceased from your efforts to try to appease God in some way, shape, or form. To stand apart from Christ, to stand away from him, removed from him, is to say, I don't need him as the sacrifice. I don't need him as the temple. I can access God by my own works and efforts and attempts. And it is to deny the one way in which God has made access to himself possible and to say, I'm going to find my own way to God. So this passage encourages us as well, uh, those of you who aren't in Christ, to rest from your efforts to curry favor before him. And it teaches us at least one other thing, which is the importance of endurance. As Christians, we are told all over the place to endure, to endure, to endure the disciples are told several times in these verses to endure. And and we're not just told to endure, and we are given no examples of what that endurance looks like. But actually, as I mentioned, you might find this encouraging. Perhaps you might do this. Read the book of Acts. And read about how God faithfully keeps the disciples and the early church in the book of Acts. When he tells them all these things, particularly in verse 10 through verse 18 of Luke 21, it can sound a whole lot like he's telling them to be a certain way, to do a certain thing in order to be saved. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. That's verse 19. But then if you read the book of Acts, you get a different flavor, what Luke's telling us. That is said, is actually, God is the one who is making sure that they endure. God is the one who's stepping alongside his people, moving by his spirit, wor- working and coordinating and encouraging and strengthening the body so that they would endure. So he tells them to endure, and then he makes sure that every possible scenario in which their endurance is possible happens. He actually makes it happen. So we see God command his disciples to endure. We see how he makes it possible for them to endure. So what do we do? Well, when we hear in the New Testament God commanding Christians to endure, and we hear ourselves being encouraged to endure as Christians, the mistake we can make is to think, all right, now it's me. Now I've got it now I must endure. And we begin to forget the fact that even as God calls us to endure, he provides for us the energy and the strength and the capacity for endurance. His Holy Spirit, his people, his word, his grace poured out through all of these various means to make sure that we do endure. And we go wrong when we try to neglect those accesses to grace that he gives us and rather go our own way to endure. As though somehow in Christian endurance is like really, is, is really strong discipline. That's not what endurance is about. Endurance is about dependence upon Christ. Dependence upon his spirit. Dependence upon his grace. That's really where Christian endurance is. That's really what it's all about. So there's at least those two points which stand. And then the third one, uh, and probably the shortest of these that we can walk away with in this text. If Jesus is the true temple, okay, and, and we are part of his body, what 1 Corinthians 7 makes clear, we are, as his body, the temple of God. That means the church, the people of God, are the, the temple. So how then should we live knowing this truth that God has made us a temple people to dwell with him? Well, that should call us to holiness. Holiness to obedience, to purity, to walk in a manner that is fitting of being members of Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, you, won't, you wouldn't take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, so therefore honor, glorify God in your bodies. If we know that Christ has replaced the old temple, and we are now the temple as we have been joined with him, it, it, it inspires us towards holiness. Towards right living and towards purity. As Christians, there is no room for so much grace that we, we do not cease to make a war against sin in our life. In fact, the grace of God compels us to put to death sin and to wage war against everything that assails us and causes us to not have proper unity and fellowship and purity before God. So, why as Christians we confess our sins not just daily, but even here as a corporate body, we started this worship service off by confessing our sins together because we know that we have them. And because God calls us to holiness and we are his temple, we walk in that holiness and we, we ask him for forgiveness where we fall short. So what, what these verses teach us is that Jesus being the true temple calls us to endure faithfully, to be holy as the temple is holy, And ultimately, he says that he will accomplish all of this by his own power and strength, such that there is no more work for us to do, only to rest in Christ and his finished work. So with that, let us pray. Father, we thank you for these words, which you have written long ago by your servant Luke, and which yet live mighty and powerful for us today. Lord, they speak to our weakness, they speak to our need for redemption. And Lord, by the example of your faithfulness towards your disciples, they speak as an encouragement to us to help us to know that when we are called to be faithful and to endure, you strive with us to ensure that that does take place. Lord, I pray that we would not harden our hearts like the first century Jewish people did in rejecting their Messiah, but we would be sensitive to your call and to your voice to respond to you faithfully and to dwell with you in unity, being united to you in the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this on all God's people say, amen.